0: Sir. Good morning again, and we are going to continue through the book of Nehemiah, and this week we are going to tackle chapter 11, and last week we, we covered chapter 10, which was, uh, which was interesting because we saw a lot of names, a lot of genealogies, and when you go before that, go back, what's actually happening in Nehemiah is God has raised him up. Because the Israelites at the time were scattered all over the known world. And he had raised Nehemiah up to go back to Jerusalem. He had never been there. He was 800 miles away in, um, in, uh, in Persia. And God had raised him up to go and rebuild the walls that were torn down. And so he succeeded at doing that in about 52 days. And then after they rebuilt the walls... They had started to try to follow the Word of God. They saw the Word of God. The law was opened up to them. They had never read it. They wept and they confessed their sins. They made a covenant, which is uh, all of chapter 9 and 10 is about that covenant that they made. And last week was the specifics of the covenant of what they were going to do to ensure that that covenant was kept for generations to come. And if anybody remembers, the one thing that they were literally obsessed with On keeping covenant was keeping the house of God, not neglecting the house of God. And we talked about this last week, that the house of God is the temple at the time. And the temple had been rebuilt, but they had to have it kept by the priests, the Levites, the servants. The sacrifices had to go on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so they needed to get all that back in place so that they could do what they had said and promised they would do in this covenant. But what we talked about was what does that point to? How does that relate to us? Well, how does it relate? Jesus Christ is the new temple. He is the place now where heaven and earth meet. We don't have to go into the temple. We, have to, we don't have to go into the Holy of Holies. We could simply come to Christ. And we talked about the house of God and the law of God was put into place for our protection. Because God is so holy and he's in, he's on his throne in heaven. And for him to speak and interact with his chosen people in order to, 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 to make them pure for the world is he had to make sure they weren't consumed by his presence. So build this temple, do these sacrifices, do all the stuff. And it kept them as a safety zone, as a covering. And so now in this chapter we're they're sort of expanding even more. And uh, in chapter 11, we're, we're going to see some uh, genealogies and things like that. But we're also going to see not only the temple of God being kept, but Jerusalem, the holy city, being repopulated. And so this is another big pivot point in the history of Israel. And so we'll start at Nehemiah. Uh, we're only going to read through the first nine verses. There's actually 36 verses. But again, they're just names um, I don't want to say just names, but it would take us weeks and weeks to go through all the names and the meaning of the names. What I'm going to do is sort of summarize what these names mean, and we're going to talk about why the certain names were meant to be exactly where they are in these genealogies. So join with me. Uh, if you, could look, uh, you could look up at the screen if you like, or you can open to Nehemiah uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. There are Bibles in the back. If you would like one, Jerry will get you one. So it says, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. But the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. While nine tenths remained in the other cities. So there were 50,000 people roughly at the time. So we're looking at about 10% of those 5,000 that will actually live in the walled city. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now, these are the heads of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem. But in the cities of Judah, each lived on his own property in their cities. The Israelites, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, the descendants of Solomon's servants. Verse 4, some of the sons of Judah and some of the sons of Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. That's in that walled city. For the sons of Judah, uh, Athaiah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Shepatiah, and the son of Mahelelel. I know that's, right? Where's he going with it? But here's the important part of the sons of Perez. And Masiah, the son of Baruch, the son of Kohhoza, the son of Haziiah, the son of Adaiah, the son of Joirib, the son of Zechariah, the son of the Shilonite. Now, these are going all back into the history of Israel, back even to the Exodus, even before that. So they are important. And again, verse 6, all the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 able men. Now these are the sons of Benjamin. Salu, the son of Meshalem, the son of Joed, the son of Pediah, the son of Koliah, the son of Maesiah, the son of Ithiel, the son of uh, uh, Jeshiah, which is actually Isaiah, um, a a variation of spelling that, not related to the prophet. And after him, <clears throat> Gabi and Salai, 928. And in verse 9, Joel, the son of Zikri, was, was their overseer. And Judah, the son of Hasenua, oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> Hasenua was second in command of the city. I almost got them all. And this Hasenua, or whatever his name is, messed me up. <laughs> so we'll preach on him next week. I'm going to find some dirt. All right, so Nehemiah chapter 11, 10 to 14 lists the priests. Uh, that, verses 15 to 19, lists the Levites. Verses 20 to 36 lists the rest of Israel, of the priests and of the Levites. Uh, there were in all the cities of Judah, each in their own inheritance. So, <clears throat> here we have the repopulation of the holy city. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about that, and then we're going to try to dovetail that in to what this means to us as we live in the kingdom of God, which is a parallel to that or, or is the anti-type of that type. And so when you think about this, it, it could, I couldn't help thinking about moving. Uh, moving is by far one of my biggest fears. I literally despise moving. I, I, my, I've been in my house for 16 years, my first ever house. Uh, before that, I lived in about 25 or 26 different apartments, places, crawl spaces, you name it. Uh, I moved many dozens of times, well, not many, dozens of times from my youth until my mid 20s. And moving became a part of my life. I got it down to the fact I could move in and move out within just a few hours. But I hated it. Now, next to that, second in, I guess, the hate level, would be helping other people move. <laughs> And I, and, and I don't mean any offense to those that I've helped move that are here and to those that are going to be moving. Um, but take, you know, listen, pay attention closely. <laughs> but helping people move is my second greatest fear. And I actually, you know, when I was in business if people would help ask me to move, I would say, can I just send a moving company to your house? And they would say, are you serious? That's like over a thousand bucks. I'm like, I, that's fine, I'll just send them over, but I'm not gonna be there and uh, rather than help, you know, because you know what happens when you help people move, they there's there's oftentimes they're disorganized. You know, there's 12 different people fighting for who's going to arrange the, the, the you know, the truck and why it's better to do it this way and that way. Uh, but best of all is when you you show up and someone says, you know, well, they're not packed, you know. And so now you're packing. You know, they bring you to a, a room and they're like, "Well, oh, you know, we didn't get to this one, so you could just start putting all this stuff in boxes." And so that stuff I I don't like to do and I couldn't imagine what's going on here in Jerusalem because all these people not only did they move from Persia all scattered throughout uh, you know the Assyrian Empire the Persian Empire, they moved back into uh, Judah into Israel, but now they have to move and relocate again and move inside the city, and so that was uh sort of not even. Um, compared to the most unpleasant move of the Israelites, which was when they were moved out of the promised land prior to this. Because again, remember, they were in exile for, well, the northern kingdom was in exile over a couple hundred years, and they were dispersed. But the southern kingdom had been in exile for 70 years. And so they were literally uprooted out of their homes by this barbaric army, the Babylonians, and the northern kingdom, the Assyrians. And um, they were relocated and scattered all over. Now, when the Assyrians came in from the north, that was in 721 BC, they came in and they took the ten tribes of Israel because Israel was divided into two, the northern and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom were ten tribes, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And that was the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. But the Northern Kingdom—I don't know if you've ever heard of the Lost Tribes of Israel. That's what they're referring to: those Northern Kingdom, that Northern Kingdom, because the ten tribes lost all of their genealogy because they were literally scattered and then incorporated in, into all the other people groups. And so, people often looked at the Northern Kingdom like Samaria with, like, you're not a real, real Israelite. You know, you're half-breed or whatever they would say. And they could never prove it because the genealogies were lost. And so the southern kingdom was much different. The southern kingdom, called Judah, which also contained Benjamin, which is a real interesting story that we won't be able to really get into much today, but we'll touch on it. But they were conquered by the Babylonians wholesale. So basically, they got taken out of the southern kingdom, brought to Babylon, and then when uh, uh, Cyrus issued the decree 70 years later that they can go back. They went back in wholesale. So they were able to be identified, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And um, they got back there uh, about 516 uh, BC. And um, of course, Ezra and Nehemiah, I'm sorry, they, they, um, uh, they were conquered in um, 516 BC, but they got back in, fi- no, right, that was right the first time. Strike that from the record. So, of course, Ezra and Nehemiah tell a whole story of them coming back. So, the, Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of the first group of people to come back, okay, in 516 B.C. That was Ezra. He told about Zerubbabel coming in to build the temple. And then about 100 and some years later, Nehemiah comes and uh, and he rebuilds the wall. And so... That's the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, rebuilding the temple, the wall, and the holy city. So in this passage, we read of the residents who moved back, not just to the promised land, not just to that area that they once had, and then it was taken away, but they moved specifically from this scattered area into the promised land, but then there were some that were selected to go in and live within the holy city, Jerusalem. Now, the tribe of Judah, for no mistake, is the main group listed in this passage. Actually, the whole southern kingdom was named Judah. And it lists in this passage some unique aspects of their genealogies. When when you see genealogies in the scripture, it's not everything. It's just the ones that the writers feel you need to know that are pertinent to the history of Israel as it relates to the future of Israel. Got that? So those genealogies always relate back to the history of Israel so that way they can point to the correct direction of the future of Israel because Israel was all about genealogies. Why? Because the Messiah was to come through the tribe of Judah. And so basically they go to great lengths to emphasize the tribe of Judah and their inhabitants along with Benjamin. So the big question is that's, On everybody's mind right now, great anticipation. Please, Pat, don't stop. Tell me more about these genealogies. Why the sons of Judah and Benjamin are they mentioned specifically? Well, I'm going to give you two basic reasons, and then we'll try to see how this applies to us. Number one, again, the only kingdom was Judah that returned intact. So they were considered the true people of Israel, Judah and Benjamin. Remember the Apostle Paul when he was given his whole resume? He said he was a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin. That made him super legit in everybody's eyes. He, was a, he had his genealogy traced right back, then right back to David, which, which is part of Judah there, and then right back to Abraham. So this was a direct line. Had Jerusalem, had the temple, had the Ark of the Covenant until the exile, and so it was a very important, prestigious line. But the tribe of Judah, again, for for reasons I've already hinted to, was very special. Through the line of Judah would be the one that ultimately rules over the holy city to come, pointing to, to the king. He would rule over the future holy city as well. And so we have three types of cities here. We have Nehemiah's Jerusalem of the holy city being rebuilt. Prophecies fulfilled. God gathered his people back. That then points to the holy city that was launched, the kingdom of God by Jesus Christ, at his, at his, uh, his birth, death, resurrection, and ascension, formally at the ascension. But yet that holy city points to the future holy city, which will be the new Jerusalem, which we read of in Revelation 21 and 22. So hopefully you got all that. And so we read uh, from Revelation 5 uh, this morning. And if you keep going down uh, to verse 8 in Revelation 5, you see that it also refers to Jesus, the one who's able to open the book. um, That scroll, right? He's able to open the book, which contains what? The seven seals of judgment. And so this is a picture of Jesus ascending up to heaven, then opening those books of judgment, and then Jerusalem becoming destroyed from those judgments. And so we have the scripture also in Genesis 49, 9 to 10, where Jacob was blessing all of his sons. And he said, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He he couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares to rouse up against him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The line of the king shall not depart from Judah. Nor the ruler's staff. You see there's the ruler with his staff, with his scepter, but there's also that image of the shepherd as well with that staff. It will not come from between his feet. And then it says until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Most commentators believe that Shiloh, although it's a very difficult word to translate, it's all over the place. uh, They've come up with he whose it is, that which belongs to him. That's what the word Shiloh means. And so they're pointing to the Messiah and to him shall be the obedience of his people. So you see how important the tribe of Judah is. But there's also something even more significant here. There's a unique name that's also listed twice in these genealogies. And Ezra the priest writing this book, knowing all about the scriptures better than anybody there probably at the time, he made sure to put in from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David, the sons of Perez. Perez was one of the twin sons of Judah by Tamar. Remember, Tamar's uh, husband, Ur, he had died and uh, his brother would not go into her to bear children. And so she got mad and dressed up as a harlot, and she enticed Judah while he was on a little trip, and she became pregnant with twins. And she was about to get stoned for her adultery until she said, well, the man who is the father owns this signet ring and this staff, because Judah had given that as a a partial payment uh, for those services. And so Perez, from his line, came the Hezronites, which came the loyal I'm sorry the royal line of David right through Christ, so we're trying there this genealogy is pointing to us something very specific that the regathering of Israel is not just for the sake of regathering it 's so that the line of the Messiah can be kept pure. so we have the holy city being populated intentionally. With the tribe of Judah, specifically the sons of Perez, to ensure the royal line to Christ. Now all the residents, as we see here, they were applauding these residents that came to volunteer to live in Jerusalem. So they all wanted to live in Jerusalem. Everybody that came back was probably like, yeah, I'd like to go to the holy city and be near, near the temple. But because there were so many, they had to cast lots. And so casting lots was a way for them to determine the will of God. So when they cast lots, they believed that God would dictate the answer through that. We see it in the book of Acts. When Matthias was chosen, they casted lots for him to decide between the three or two other apostles that they were thinking of. So all of them wanted to live, but only those who were willing to give up everything and move yet again into Jerusalem would be there. These are the ones that I believe desired something deeper. And, and again, we could look at this from a, you know, a God's sovereignty versus man's will perspective. Those two things don't negate each other. God um, you know, works and, and speaks to man's heart and determines his steps. Although man says, oh, I'm going this way. It's God that, that steers the heart. So God typically does that and he puts into the heart of man a desire to want to be closer to him. So these people wanted to be close to God in his holy city. Why? Because the temple was there. That was everything. The presence of God, the temple. I want to live there 24-7. Although the others who were true Israelites, they wanted to camp out or they chose or settled for camping out and living outside of the walls. And so you have two groups that came back. You have the ones that lived outside the walls of Jerusalem and the surrounding cities of Judah, which they were fine with. their return to the homeland. But then you have the ones that were called to something deeper. And so those who desire to live more fully and those who want to desire to live more completely in Christ's presence this would be fulfilled for the Jewish people by living closer to the temple. And so there, now we are sort of forming here where we're going with all this. Because now this comes right back to us. Because there are many of us here, I mean, I don't know everyone's heart. I don't know where you're at with the Lord. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. But God desires all of us. He wants our whole entire being. We've been talking about this every week almost. Full, complete, absolute surrender is what Christ wants. He doesn't want to settle for anything less. And so are we willing to take that step? Or should I say, move in to that holy city so that we can have that ability to draw closer to God? Now again, that holy city is Christ. And so really what I'm saying is, Are you willing to take that step today? Okay. And I know we have two full rows up here. Don't worry. They're not anxious seats. I don't know if you ever heard of the anxious seat back in the 17, 1800s, they would leave two or three rows in the front so that anybody who was anxious after, you know, the hard preaching, they could come and sit there and talk to the pastor and be saved, uh, you know, and say the prayer and all that. And so um, that's not what that's for. But I will challenge you today as I challenge myself. Can we move closer to Christ? How can we move in closer? Now, I'm I'm trying to think here. How would these people have thought about moving and relocating again? Well, number one, I think it applies to us greatly is you have to before you take a move, especially when we relocate our home, you have to count the cost. You have to count the cost. What is this going to cost me to make this move? When you move, there's so many things to consider. There's employment, where am I going to find a job? How am I gonna support myself? The demographics, the crime rate, uh, you gotta pack, you gotta relocate. Depending on how light you live, you may have a, a lot of stuff to do. Like me, I don't even want to attempt ever moving from my house. Not even when all my kids leave. Even when my, life, my wife you know, and I send her off to the assisted living in a couple of years. <laughs> I'm going to be at that house. No, she knows I'm joking. She's actually teases me that that's where she's sending me. So I had to get her back there. There's administrative work to be done. And if you don't consider these things and plan them out, you are going to have a problem. So moving into the city, i.e., getting closer and drawing closer to Jesus Christ in your life isn't going to happen by accident. It's not going to happen by accident. God is able to change your heart, and He certainly does through His Holy Spirit. But you have an opportunity, even right now, because of your mind in Christ, to make a determination that you are going to make this move, that you are going to draw closer to Him. And again, it's not by making church going more, necessarily. It's not by um, you know reading your Bible more, praying more. Those things can become... You can become dependent on those things as your your metric. And when you do that, they become your Savior. They become your Lord. And I'm not saying that I don't want you to read and pray and go to church. But I'm saying that I want you to do that after you take care of the main thing. And that is full surrender and submission to Christ. And then those things will become so... They'll be just as important. They'll have so much value... That nothing will be compared to what you have in your heart with Christ when you move and take that next step. Number two, those who move into the city must give up their old life and old way of living. There's no commuting to this city. You have to live on campus. It means moving away from the comfortable. You know, like a student, like some of these students that are home today, Jerry and my daughter and others. We have, we have from school, they live on campus. It's often very difficult for them to come home because they're out of their right routine. They get like, well, you know, I'm out of my routine, it's weird. And then they finally get into their routine and then they go back and they have the same problem there. <clears throat> you, know, when you, you have to acclimate to your new living space and you have to acclimate to that society. You can't try to take the old place that you lived with you in there. You can take a few things, which you can carry necessarily, like symbolically, but you cannot take in, the, in Christ, coming closer to Christ is always going to mean less of you. It's never going to be more of you. It's always going to be less of importance on, the, on what you desire and more importance on what Christ is going to do with you. You don't even have to know what he's calling you to do if he calls you to move. You just have to move like Abraham did. He didn't know where he was going, but God was calling him out and he obeyed. And this is the man, he is the father of our faith. He believed by faith before the law and God accredited to him as righteousness, as faithful to the covenant because of his faith. And then he gave him the signs and so forth after that. And so you have to be willing to give up that life. Now, thirdly, you move into this holy city, you have to be ready to sacrifice. Although that is implied in most everything I've said. But I'm really talking about sacrificing everything. Jesus spoke about this. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which is a man, which a man found and hid. And, and, and from the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And again, this is a principle here. Like Jesus said to the rich young ruler, the one thing you're missing is sell all your possessions, sell all your riches and come and, and follow me. See, he's, he's basically saying, go trade in all of the things that, are, that you believe are the key to life, that you believe are going to fulfill you, that you are depending on, and take all of those and be willing to get rid of it all and come to me. That's what it means by saying, look, I'm going to spend all the money I have to go out and buy this swamp out here. Hey, but you don't know there's a special turtle in that swamp, right? That's true. Um, and some weird turtle in there, right? And so you if it's worth billions of dollars, you know, I'll buy that, I'll buy that property for whatever I have. How much more? Christ, having Christ, He is. There's no price that we can put on Him, and so that's why we have to be willing to take everything and be and be happy with it, to be satisfied and content. That means saying, "God, if you want to take, uh, you know, my my uh, my investments, it's Your will. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ha- grab onto them as they're my salvation." God, if even our own family members, we cling. To, uh, trust me, I know. I, have, uh, uh, you know. I have two daughters and two sons. And I, my daughters, I cling. Right? I cling to them. I don't want to let them go. It's a little different with the boys, right? We want to sh- send them out. We want to shoot them out. <laughs> go, son. But the daughters were like, stay here. Come to daddy. I'm going to keep you. You're not going anywhere. We hold on to that. No, God's saying you got to let them go. You got to do what you have to do and let them go. And again, you could take this to so many different levels. You know, I don't like to, to be morbid, but, you know, it's like even our own life, a physical life. We have people that, uh, the people that were, if we look at our history in our church, uh, in the church wholesale I'm talking about, you know, the people that have given their life, that have sold everything, and the people that have lived short lives even after that. You know, read the, the diary of David Brainerd, who was a missionary here in New Jersey, uh, back uh, in the 1600s, I believe. And you will not be able to put it down. And this guy was 21 years old and he died, I believe, at 24 years old. Um, but all he had was Christ and he had given up everything for that. And so again, don't make, this, don't make this about, well, Pat thinks we shouldn't have good things. I'm not talking about that. God blesses you with all the good things that you have. They're from him. We've got to remember that. What I'm saying is, is be willing to let go of those things to learn to get more of Christ. So the fourth thing is that you have to be ready to commit to a new social order. As we get into the temple city, things were different in the temple city. You couldn't act the way you acted outside the walls. Couldn't go certain places. You couldn't enter in too far. But you also had to do other things too. You couldn't go into temple, uh, a city as a Gentile, or only certain parts of it you could. You couldn't go in there and not keep the Sabbath. You go in there and you start, you know, selling stuff on the Sabbath day, you're going to get booted out. And I'm not correlating that to Sunday service or Sabbath. That's a whole different thing. I'm just saying there was a different social order. And so the, the one foot, that we tend to have in the world usually doesn't want to step fully in because we don't want to adapt to the new what we believe is going to be rules and regulations well, if I step in here I'm going to have to be a you know a total like someone said you know I'm going to have to wear polyester pants and I'm going to have to you know wear my hair up and all this other stuff some woman some crazy woman said that believe it or not Um, And so, yeah, so that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that when you step in, you have to realize that Christ is going to require of you things that maybe you're not used to doing. Because we can all be Christians, right? And then when it comes time to forgive an enemy, it gets really, really difficult to be a Christian. Especially someone that hurts you. Someone that offends you. But Jesus says, part of this kingdom, part of this holy city, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Live by loving your enemies, blessing those that persecute you. Oh, that's a new social order. Try that, in the, try saying that to, to the guy at the gas station, whoever, you know, who's not a believer. Like, what are you talking about? You know, the world is like, well, you, they deserve that, man. You had every right to do that. I could say, yeah, yeah, you're right. But I say, no, that, that was wrong. I shouldn't have did that. Well, they didn't treat you. They didn't tell you the truth. You could lie to them. You're just doing it to protect yourself. No, that's not part of this. My new social order is is that I'm before the Lord and, and that he wants me to be pure in heart and in mind. You know, you have to love God fully with all your heart, mind, and soul. You have to love your neighbor. Like I said, your enemies. You have to forgive those that have hurt you. Everyone. That doesn't mean certain people, the easy things to forgive. God has allowed that hurt to come to grow you as well, to forgive those that have let you down and hurt you. You have to live dependent on the Holy Spirit. It's no longer, again, about me. Me is the remnant of the old man. And five, you have to be ready to fight at a moment's notice. There's no running or hiding. The walls keep you in. (laughs) When you jump into that holy city, you are identifying yourself with Christ. Fully in, fully in, you're identifying yourself with Christ. I hope you do that. I hope wherever you go, you let people know whose you are because that will make your Christian life so much easier. You can't be the undercover Christian because you'll constantly be trying to keep your disguise on. You'll constantly be caught you know, take with that mask off. You have to make that decision. But there's no running and hiding, no befriending the enemy. You will be attacked. In the gang world, there's something called the blood in, blood out assertion. That simply means that gang members have to shed their blood to get in and they have to shed their blood to get out. The best way to leave a gang or desist is from... A gang is from a gradual exit. Otherwise, it can be interpreted wrongly. For instance, if you leave abruptly, or you leave and hang out with a rival gang member, or even join another gang that's a rival, you will end up probably threatening your own life. Jesus rescues you from the rival gang, people. He rescues you from the vicious gang of darkness of the enemy. He transfers you to the kingdom of God, and he does it abruptly. He does it abruptly. And so you have to be ready for that war. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, your adversary, he, he, he prowls around like a roaring lion. See, Jesus is the true lion of Judah, but he tries to go around and, and be that lion. He's not, but he can devour He looks to devour you. I hope you know that. He's not merciful. Unless you want to just stay away and be outside the walls, then it'll be okay with that. As long as you're there, you're not a threat. But when you enter in with that full commitment, you will get attacked. And this all requires faith and action. Faith and action. You're moving into the city by faith in Christ that he will supply your every need. He will protect you. He will be with you as you fight the enemy. Don't wait for the perfect invitation or the perfect view or the perfect property or until you're perfect. I'm not worthy. I'm a gross sinner. I can't move in close, closer to Christ until I get better. That's why you must enter closer and you will get better. You will feel the burden leave you as you go closer to the sin bearer. You don't put your foot in the shower when you're filthy, right? You don't just put your foot in. You don't wait until you're clean to jump in. No, I don't know about you, but when, if you're out and you're sweaty or you're working out or you're doing everything, you run to that shower. You don't, "Ah, I don't really want to go in until I'm clean, I gotta wait until I get all this stuff off because I don't want to offend the shower. I don't want to get dirt on the bottom of the shower. No, you jump in, you soak yourself, your entire body. That's what Christ wants to do. He wants to soak you in the Holy Spirit. He wants you to move in and be soaked. Now look at Perez. He he was the line to Christ. He was dirtier than anybody. His mother committed adultery with her father-in-law. You have gross sins there, fornication, treachery, deception, born in sin. To bring forth the spotless lamb, Jesus, who would eliminate and atone for all sins, for every person that enters in. Leave all your belongings, your baggage, all your concerns, all your sins, all your guilt, all your fears, Outside the walls, that's at the cross, outside the wall. All those insecurities. There are many gates to get into the city, but really only one way to enter, and that's through Christ alone. Hebrews says, therefore, Jesus, this is 13, 12 to 14. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, Bearing his reproach. For we do not have a lasting city here, but we are seeking the city which is to come. When you do this, you will get Jesus as your perfect neighbor. You will be in the constant presence of God as you move closer. And again, you have to when you move in, you stay, you don't go back. And you're saying to myself, How am I going to do that? Well, you're not. You're going to depend on Christ. You're going to take the step of faith. And move in. One of the best is the, the joy. The joy that is, it can't be fulfilled in anything outside the gates. Nothing outside the gates can bring you the joy of entering in. In your presence, Psalm 16, is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Do you believe that? Or do you hypothetically believe it? It's for other people. It's not for you. I tried it, Pat. It's no good. I didn't, it doesn't really work. I tried it. It doesn't work. It's not going to work if you're looking for it to work. You have to commit and say, I'm going to do this no matter what. I'm going to commit, come closer to Christ, even if this is how I have to live for the rest of my life. That's the attitude he wants. And then you'll start to see the change. Procrastination, the art of keeping up with yesterday and avoiding today. Procrastination is opportunity's natural assassin. Procrastination is salvation's natural assassin. Don't say tomorrow, next week. People talk about moving for years. End up, their house value goes down, circumstances change. They miss out on what would have been. James 4, 4 17 says, Therefore, to, to one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, it is sin. Waiting when Christ is calling and inviting is one of the most dangerous sins. Tomorrow could be the most dangerous and damning word that we ever could remember or think of in eternity. And why? Well, because there's nothing more certain than death and nothing more uncertain than life so i pray that you choose christ absolutely but i pray beyond that that you choose to move in closer taking that step of faith depending on him full surrender that's what he desires so let's pray father i pray for the for for each and every person here including myself my own heart and mind lord that you would Eliminate those obstacles, God, and strengthen the weakness of my faith and strength, strengthen the weakness of our faith, Lord, so that way we can take that step. Lord, for you're just so amazing that you stand with open arms, inviting us in closer and closer. And then when we get there, there there's more. There's close, we, we, I don't think we're ever going to be able to fulfill that, but it's, it's, the, it's the, the most incredible thing, Lord, to be in your presence. And so, Lord, we desire more of you Please fill us with your Holy Spirit. Draw us in, draw us near in Jesus name. Amen. Please stand.